Good morning, Christ Point. Uh, if you are new to Christ Point, my name is James. I have the great joy and privilege of being the pastor here. Uh, we find ourselves uh, walking through the, the Gospel of John, but as as Phil was reading this morning, I thought, I, I know I don't do this a lot, but I thought I'd call an audible and change sermon series. Uh, it just kind of hit me. We are going to, we're going to start a series today on animals in the Bible, animals in the Bible. We're going to start with lions. We're going to start. I'm sorry. I won't talk about it again. Take it down. Take it down. I uh, know we are in the gospel of John. We've been walking through John's gospel for the past year. John's gospel is a story all about Jesus. It is about who Jesus uh, was and who Jesus is. And it is a story about life that is found in his name. And so every week as we come together and we open the gospel of, of John, our hope is that we would see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that we would believe in him and that by believing in him, we would experience life in his name. And so this morning we continue with that series or with that uh, sermon series. We're nearing the end of the life of Christ. Uh, John chapter 13, we enter into what uh, really is the last 24 hours of the life of Christ. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, and uh, Phil read our passage this morning. And if you notice, there are almost essentially three scenes that we see in John chapter 13. There is uh, what serves as the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. There is a new commandment uh, that initially doesn't sound so new that Jesus gives to his disciples. And then uh, Jesus foretells that Peter uh, will deny him uh, before the rooster crows uh, three times. And so I want to kind of walk through each of those scenes this morning, and I want to point out a couple observations uh, for you and for me. And so let's begin with uh, the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. Uh, if you haven't already turned to your Bibles uh, to John chapter 13, you can join me there. The passage uh, will be on the screen as well. But let's kind of revisit what is taking place in the upper room. It says in John chapter 13, verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, but what we need for the feast, or go buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So you can picture the scene. The disciples are sitting at the table with Jesus. You might remember last week we said that this was not a, a table that would be common to us. It was a table that was low uh, to, the, to the ground. Here's a, a picture of what it likely would have looked like. The disciples are sitting around the table. John, more than uh, likely, is at the place of honor. Jesus, as the host, 
would have been right next to John, and then the disciples would have been uh, scattered about kind of around that table. And so you can imagine what it would have been like for Jesus to be able to have a conversation with the disciple that Jesus loved, more than likely John, and and other people at the table didn't necessarily hear uh, what Jesus was saying. So that's the picture. We're in the upper room. The disciples are on a thin mat, likely lying on their left side. They're sitting with Jesus, listening uh, to Jesus. And the text tells us that Jesus was troubled in spirit. Jesus was troubled in spirit. Jesus felt the weight of that moment. He knew what he was getting himself into. He knows that Jesus or that Judas is going to betray him. So his, Jesus' dark night is closing in. He is aware that he will suffer and that he will die. A scripture teaches us that Jesus was and is fully God and fully man. He is fully God. We see that a taught and we see Jesus act that out in the gospel accounts. Jesus claimed to be deity. He claimed to be God. We see Jesus in the gospels perform miracles. We hear and listen to the teachings of Jesus. We watch as people come and follow him and other people leave him. There is ample evidence in the gospels that Jesus claimed to be God and uh, Jesus was fully man. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I think about the life of Christ, it's easier for me to think that Jesus was fully God uh, than to grasp or understand what it means for him to be fully man. I can see him performing the miracles. I can hear his great teaching and go, well, clearly there was something special about Jesus. He, he was God. He was deity. But one of the things that I think, at least for me, that oftentimes I forget or I don't know if I ponder enough is just the humanity of Jesus. Uh, Jesus had emotions. Jesus uh, felt. He, uh, he experienced the weightiness of that moment and about what was going to take place. Jesus would experience unspeakable pain. And so scripture tells us in John chapter Uh, 13 verse 21 that he was troubled in spirit that phrase troubled in spirit is the same phrase that we read in john chapter 11 verse 33 when jesus approaches uh, lazarus's grave and has heard that his friend had died it is the the same phrase that's used in john chapter 12 verse 27 when jesus uh, taught about the coming dread of the cross and said now my soul is troubled When Jesus came to earth, he did not hover above all of the hurt and the pain of humanity. He experienced it. He went through it. He was not an out-of-touch general, a perch safely somewhere away from all of the action, sitting somewhere in a command center, doling out orders. Jesus was boots on the ground. Uh, He lived life in a fallen and a broken world, and he experienced the pain and the heartache of that broken world. And so this scene that we uh, read about in John chapter 13 is a sobering uh, scene. Here we read the motives of Judas finally come to light. Uh, Judas essentially shows his true colors, perhaps uh, for the first time, and nobody saw it coming. 
I mean, how many times in life have you had experiences, things that have happened to you, and you've thought to yourself, boy, I didn't see that coming. Have you had a moment like that before? The disciples didn't see this coming. They would have never guessed that Judas would be the one who would betray Jesus. I mean, Judas carried around the money bag, right? He was the one that they gave the responsibility to to carry the money, which leads me to believe that in some ways he was well thought of among the disciples. They saw him fit for the task. And yet here we are at the Last Supper at the table, and Jesus essentially brings to light the heart of Judas, John catches wind of what's taking place, the one that Jesus loved, but the other disciples don't know what's going down. And so when Judas gets up to leave, they think that Judas has gone to buy groceries. I mean, they think he's getting food for the feast. They think to themselves, maybe Judas is going out and finding someone he can bless and giving money to the poor. Little do they know that Judas is is going out ultimately to set in motion the plan to kill the Savior of the world. And the disciples did not see it coming. A few observations as I think about this scene. Number one, remember that God's unfolding plan isn't random. Remember that God's unfolding plan isn't random. This scene is not fluid in the sense that things hadn't really been decided yet. And the God of the universe was kind of shrugging his shoulders, wondering what was going to go down. What took the disciples by surprise did not, did not take God by surprise. God's hand was over this, even this. There is a prophecy in in Zechariah chapter 11 Verses 12 through 13, Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 through 13, that read, Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as many wages, 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord. To the potter. God is not surprised by the things that take place in the world. Uh, even evil and horrific things, they do not catch God off guard. Remember that God's unfolding plan um, is not random. Uh, secondly, remember that a time is a great revealer of the human heart. Time is the great revealer of the human heart. We certainly see this in the life of Judas. There is no indication up until this point that Judas is bad news. I mean, even to the very end, when Judas gets up and leaves, the rest of the disciples think he's going grocery shopping, right? They think he's going to go do a good deed. They're thinking to themselves, perhaps, well, that's awfully nice of him. Like he's going to minister, like he's going to pick up some food. And yet they did not uh, see the heart of Judas. People typically don't fake fine forever. People don't typically fake fine forever. I mean, more often than not, it is possible for one to play games for a season, perhaps for a while, maybe for many years. But oftentimes, time is the great revealer of of the human heart. We see this in the life of Judas. Number three, remember the end of a story is arguably more important than the beginning. If time is 
the great revealer of the human heart, then remember that the end of the story is arguably even more important than the beginning. More and more, I find myself being less excited about how someone starts with God and more interested in how someone finishes with God. Maybe it is because I'm getting a little older. Maybe it's because I find myself smack dab in the middle of my 40s. But, but more and more, the, the experiences that we have when perhaps when we are younger, uh, the, like the bold commitments to follow the Lord, to turn our lives around, to get our stuff together, um, those, those circumstances are not insignificant. I don't want to make light of them. They can be good and beautiful and life-changing and life-shaping. But, but more and more, I'm thinking to myself, like, I wonder, I wonder how he's going to finish. I wonder how she is going to finish. I wonder how I am going to finish. And I'm, I'm more interested with the last five minutes of the game than I am the first five minutes of the game. I mean, if it is true that life is a marathon, and I believe that it is, I believe the spiritual life is that, uh, perhaps an ultra marathon, how, how silly would it be to throw your arms up a quarter mile into the race in victory? Like you're just getting started. I'm sure there were moments in the life of Judas where people looked at him and thought, man, like he is making a difference. I'm glad we got someone that knows what they're doing in charge. And yet when push came uh, to shove, uh, Judas bolted. I don't, I don't want that to be our story. I don't want that to be my story or your story. One of the things that I oftentimes pray for, for myself and for you, is a long obedience in the same direction. It's Eugene Peterson. A long obedience in the same direction. A lifetime of following after the Lord. So that's scene one. Right? We see Judas depart, turn his back on Jesus. The second scene is this new commandment that when you hear at first, it doesn't sound new. It sounds like it's been around for a while. So I want us to think together about how this is a new commandment. It begins in verse 31 of John chapter 13. It says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So Jesus continues and says essentially that the son of man, that he is glorified and God is glorified in him. Here we see the glory of Jesus and the glory of the father. We don't just see it here though. We've seen it all throughout the pages of scripture. We see it in creation. We read of the glory of God in the world that God made. I'm reminded of Psalm 19 verse 1. Psalm 19 verse 1 reads, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
There's something about the world that God made that we can step out and look at his creation and just go like, wow. Like, God, you are great. God displays his glory in creation. And we also see that God's glory is displayed in the person of Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14 reads, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We look to the person of Jesus and we see the glory of God. To see the Son is to see the Father. To know the Son is to know the Father. We see God's glory in miracles that were performed by Jesus. After the first miracle, when Jesus turns the water into wine in John uh, chapter 2, verse 11, the text reads, This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It's all throughout the pages of Scripture. Uh, God in the person of Jesus is displaying uh, his glory. He wants us to see the glory or the goodness, the greatness of God. But it's interesting here in John chapter 13 when the text talks about now is the Son of Man glorified. Isn't that interesting? I mean, Judas had just left. Right? He left the building. Right? He's going to betray Jesus for a little bit of cash, for some money. And the text reads, now is the Son of Man glorified. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 reads, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Isn't that interesting? It is in the gospel, in the the, the playing out of the gospel that we see before us that Jesus will be glorified. Jesus will be glorified in the cross. Uh, Jesus will be glorified in in living out the gospel uh, before his followers. Jesus is glorified. And then verse um, 35 reads, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Isn't that interesting? Jesus gathers his disciples. Uh, He's about to go to trial. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. And he tells the disciples, listen, I want you to know uh, what will be your apologetic to the world, right? To a watching world who wonders who I am and what I am all about. Uh, the litmus test, the thing that they will look to is your love uh, for one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, that you are my followers, that you are my learners, that you are uh, walking after me and chasing after me and loving me. How will they know that you are a follower of Jesus? Not just by your bold proclamation, although we should be bold, and not just by your uh, church attendance, but And going to church is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Not by your denominational affiliation, although those at times can be helpful. How will people know that you are a disciple, that you are a follower of Jesus based on your love, my love, our love for one another? 
John wrote all about this, not just here in the Gospel of John, but also in 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 reads, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. John chapter 3 uh, or 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love our brothers. 1 John 3, verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 1 John chapter 2, I don't know if you're noticing a theme 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. When John writes and says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, what he meant by that is that our love for one another confirms our confession of faith. It shows that our confession of faith is real and genuine. The way the Bible speaks of faith, it is essentially saying to us, you cannot claim to love God and hate your brother. Like you, you can't have a theology that says, I love God, but I don't love the church. But that, like there's nowhere in the pages of scripture where, where that lines up with God's truth. God says, if you know me and love me, you will love one another. So why did he call this? Why did Jesus call this a new commandment? Because that commandment is as old as Moses, right? He did so because his radical love demanded a new object, a new object of love. First, the object was one another. Who are we to love as the people of God? We're to love one another. In his commentary on the Gospel of John, Kent Hughes writes, the Jews had watered down the Mosaic teaching so that they could love whom they wanted and hate whom they wanted. But Christ changed the object from neighbor to one another. This was a radical new commandment. The world at that time was divided by prejudicial divisions that make many of our differences pale in comparison. I mean, think about the differences in Scripture between master and slave, Jews and Gentiles, and so on. The Greeks regarded Jews as barbarians. The Jews had the reputation of being haters of the world. There was also a vast chasm between how men and women were treated in that society. The world during those days seemed helplessly alienated. I love what author Alexander McLaren describes when he talks about what happened because of Christ's command. He wrote, barbarian, Scythian, bond and free, male and female, Jew and Greek, learned and ignorant, sat down at one table and felt themselves all one in Christ Jesus. They were ready to break all other bonds and to yield to the untying forces that streamed out from his cross. There never had been anything like it. No wonder that the world began to babble about sorcery and conspiracies. It was only that the disciples were obeying the new commandment and a new thing had come into the world, a community held together by love and not by geographical accidents 
or linguistic affinities or the iron fetters of the conqueror, the new commandment made a new thing and the world wondered. In other words, the world took notice because people who had no business doing life together and loving one another suddenly were doing life together and they were loving one another. And people didn't have a category for it. I mean, think about it. Like, it, it didn't matter what side of the tracks you were from. Your, your background, your, your color, your preferences, your passions, your loves, like all of that was tossed out the window because there was something or someone greater that united the first century church. And out of that unity flowed love. A story is told of Johann Lucassi of the Belgian Evangelical Mission. Uh, he had come to the realization that evangelism in Belgium was going absolutely nowhere. The nation had a, a long history of traditional Catholicism. Uh, there was aggression of the cults that had left the land seemingly impervious to the gospel. Driven to the scriptures, uh, Johann read John 13 and devised a plan. First, he gathered together a diverse group of people, Belgium, Dutch, Americans, whoever would come. Second, he had them rent a house and live together for seven months. I think this was prophetic for Big Brother. Like, they, like back in the day, he was seeing something that didn't even exist yet. As, a, as, a, as is natural, when they came together, when these people came together and lived in the same house for seven months, frictions developed as the believers rubbed shoulders with one another. This, in turn, sent them desperately to prayer for love and victory. Finally, they went out to witness to others, and they began to see amazing fruits. Outsiders called them simply the people who love one another. I love that. The people who love one another. What a great idea. I think that is an incredible social experiment. So we're going to close the barn doors today. We're going to lock ourselves down for seven months or so, and we're going to live together, and we're going to drive one another nuts, and we're going to get irritated and agitated one an with one another, and then we're going to pray, and we're going to ask God to help us, to help us all. Heaven, help us. We're going to learn what it looks like to love one another, and then maybe just maybe it would be said of us that we are a people who love each other. Like that, that is what we are known for, our love for one another. So this commandment here in John chapter 13 is new in the sense that there is a new object. We are to love one another. How else is this commandment new? Well, it is new in the way we are to love. Namely, we are to love as Jesus loved us. Uh, verse 34 reads, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Never before had the Son of God, had Jesus, come into the world to lay down his life uh, for his people. That had never happened. And so this degree of greatness that is seen in the person of Jesus is also seen in the degree of his sacrifice and giving his life uh, for ours. This is new. This is new. Nothing had been experienced like this before. 
one author notes of this command to love one another, the new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate. It's profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. Love one another as I have loved you, so you also must love one another. The more we recognize the depth of our own sin, uh, the more we recognize the love of the Savior. The more we appreciate the love of the Savior, uh, the higher his standard appears. The higher his standard appears, the more we recognize how far uh, we have fallen short. Scripture calls us, commands us, uh, to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Um, It is not something that we are just to know, uh, and it is not something even necessarily that we are just to do. We we are to know it. We, We should know the word. We should know the command. And we should do it. We should live it out. But But knowing is different than doing, and doing is different than being. God doesn't only call us to do loving acts, although he does. He calls us to be a loving kind of person, to be loving people, right? In our hearts, like God always works from the inside out. He doesn't want to only change our actions. He does want to do that, but he wants us to change from the inside out, change who we are. How does that happen? Well, it happens when God begins to move and work and act in us by his spirit. So I have some questions for us to ponder this morning. How are you, how are we uh, doing in loving one another? Just think about that. How are you doing when you think about loving one another? What does it look like for you to love the people of God in this place? How is it going? Secondly, in what ways is God calling you or us to respond in love today? If, if you are here this morning and you're grading your own paper, maybe you think to yourself, you know, I'm, I'm actually doing okay. Like I think the, the Lord's done a work in my heart and in my life. And you can see the love that you have for one another. If that's you this morning, then praise the Lord. Like, that's, that's great. Like, praise God for that. Uh, if you are here this morning and the more you reflect upon that question, the, the more you realize there's some work uh, to do, then I would encourage you to confess that before the Lord and say, God, would you help me? Like, help me be a loving kind of person. Help me not just to know what I'm supposed to do, And help me not just to do it, but help me, like from the inside out, help me become a loving person. That uh, has the potential uh, to change a church and to change a community and to change a world. And so that's the new command. We see at first Judas takes off, he bolts. We see this new commandment that we, that the disciples are given to love one another as Jesus has loved us. And then lastly, in this last scene, we, we read this story of Jesus foretelling Peter's denial. It begins in verse 36 of John chapter 13. The text reads, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, 
but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. I'm always amazed at how the disciples are portrayed in the Gospels. Do you ever notice, you ever do like a character study of their life, how they live, how they, how they act? I mean, there's moments when we read about Jesus' followers and think to ourselves, man, that would have, like, that's compelling. Like, there, there, there are times of, of great faith where they, where they take a risk, where they, they seem to be a fairly bold uh, but more often than not, those stories seem to be the exception rather than the norm, particularly uh, before the resurrection. I mean, more often than not, when you look at the lives of the disciples, you kind of see them tripping over their own laces. I mean, think about this conversation between Peter and Jesus. Jesus is hours away from crucifixion. He's been telling his disciples in so many words that he was going to suffer and die. And Peter asks him on the night, so, like, where are you going? Can I come? Uh, Jesus, wherever you're going, like, I'm right there with you. I'm with you, Jesus. I'm going to lay down my life for you. Peter was so bold in his proclamation. I believe that Peter likely meant everything that he said. I'm sure when he said he would lay down his life for Jesus, he really meant he would lay down his life for Jesus. I mean, I kind of love that about Peter, to be honest with you. I mean, Peter is, is a bold character in Scripture. We've had those bold moments too, haven't we? Like those moments in life where just with new vigor and, and commitment, you you boldly claim that you're going to, kind of get your stuff together, that life's going to be different, that whatever you had just done, you're never going to do again. They're kind of the proverbial, like, throw your stick in the fire kind of moments where, like, you're going, man, Lord, I am all in. And you are. Sometimes for a day or for a week, or for a month. But the human heart has a tendency to be uh, pretty fickle. And so Jesus has a way of tempering Peter's exuberance and faith-filled excitement. He asked Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me uh, three times. A few observations about the life of Peter, the Apostle Peter, and what it means for you and for me. Number one, be sober in your bold predictions and brash commitments to the Lord. Be sober in your bold predictions and brash commitments to the Lord. I'm not suggesting that you should not make those commitments. I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't desire growth. Uh, those times in life when, when God works in you and stirs in your heart and, and you want your life to change and you want to do some things differently. I'm not suggesting that, that that's bad 
or that you shouldn't fan those flames. I think if we were to do a survey this morning, I'm sure there's people in this house who could point to a time in your life. Maybe it was when you were you were young or when you were away at college or in your early 20s or when a hardship came your way where like God really did do a good work in your life and you, you did make a commitment and you look back and you go, God, thank you for that. That was a significant moment for you. So I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish that. What I am calling for is a sober-mindedness. Sober-mindedness. I'm, I'm more, and this is just me, but I'm more hopeful when I hear someone pray, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, protect me from myself. That's more encouraging to me than when someone prays, Lord, give me another shot. It will be different this time. One prayer recognizes our utter need and dependence upon the Lord. And the other attends to place the object of faith and self and not the Savior. Um, all of us, all of us, every single one of us, me included, uh, have, have it within us to make a mess of things. All of us do. doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. How many years you've been following the Lord? How many times you're faithful in Bible study? It should sober us that we have it within ourselves to make a mess of things. So, so be sober in your bold predictions and brash commitments to the Lord. Secondly, be patient and humble in coming alongside other people during their times of failure. Be patient and humble in coming alongside other people during their times of failure. Patient because sanctification happens over a lifetime. It takes a lifetime. Uh, both other people and you. And so as long as we have breath, God is working in us and the other person. So that should cause us to be patient. And it should cause us uh, to be humble. Humble because we know uh, that anything that we have or anything that we are is because of the grace of God. Uh, we should oftentimes remind ourselves of, of the well-known saying, but for the grace of God go I. Um, were it not for the grace of God, all of us, all of us would be in a heap of trouble. I'm reminded of the lyrics of an old song from many years ago. Were it not for grace, I can tell you where I'd be, wandering down some pointless road to nowhere with my salvation up to me. I know how that would go, the battles I would face, forever running but losing the race. Were it not for grace. Were it not for grace, we're so desperate for it and dependent upon it. Someone once said, Dallas Willard once said, we burn more grace every day than a 747 burns fuel. Uh, and that is true. Uh, lastly, be mindful that past failure doesn't disqualify someone from future usefulness in God's kingdom. Be mindful that past failure doesn't always disqualify someone 
from future usefulness in God's kingdom. I'm not suggesting that there are not consequences to our actions. There are. We feel the consequences to our actions sometimes on a daily basis. But if you're looking for someone in the Bible used by God who has a squeaky clean, perfect past, you'll be looking for a while. As a matter of fact, I'll save you the trouble. There is only one, and his name is Jesus. God uses broken and imperfect people all of the time to advance his kingdom here on earth. And that is the very best news for you and for me. Because there will come a point in time in your life when you you fumble the ball, like you trip over your laces. You find yourself thinking to yourself, I did not see this coming. How did I end up here? I want you to know when you find yourself in that moment that you are not forgotten by the God of the universe. And God is not done with you. He uses imperfect people all of the time. So be mindful that past failure uh, doesn't always disqualify someone from future usefulness in God's kingdom. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for your true living and abiding word. Thank you for the ways that you use it to form and shape us and change us. Uh, God, we come to you and we admit our dependence upon you. We do not have it all together. Uh, Lord, if we put any hope in ourselves, in our own goodness, or our own righteousness, our own faithfulness, uh, then that's not going to end well. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us humble hearts. I pray that you would uh, work in us and through us in such a way that you would be glorified. Uh, God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for his command uh, for us to love one another well. I pray that you would help us to do that. We can't do it in and of ourselves. And so I pray that we would be a people marked by love. I pray that when people speak of Christ's point, they would speak of a people uh, who love one another. Would you help us to do that? Uh, God, thank you so much for your grace. We're desperate for it. uh, And we give you thanks for it today. God, we love you. We thank you for loving us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen. Would you stand?